Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 733 with Ariane Dugan. I think the biggest part is the education. You know, that's what the journalist does. It's to educate uh, the public. And that's what at D'Artagnan we've been doing for 35 years. It's to educate whether it's the chefs who are our main customers or the consumers in uh, the fact that when you raise animals the right way, the product at the end is going to be better. It's going to be better for you. It's going to be better tasting. It's going to be better for the planet. And it's going to be better for the, the actual people who are um, uh, raising the animals. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Find out why Toast POS is the number one recommended restaurant POS system on Restaurants Unstoppable. If you're going to survive this upcoming recession, you have got to adapt. And you can't just adapt. You have to adapt fast. With Toast's cloud-based restaurant POS, your system will update to evolve along with changing industry trends and guest expectations. To learn more, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, for a limited time, you will get one month free POS software, three months of free digital ordering tools, and 50% off implementation to ease the impact of COVID-19. This is a value of $1,000, but you've got to use our links. What's going on? Unstoppable. So we have a great show for you today, but I have to remind you that today's sponsor, Toast Tab, doesn't pay me unless I convert for them. Meaning if they get a new customer that came through my lead, my funnel, then they'll pay me a commission of $2,500. And I'm going to split that with you after taxes. That's about $1,000 each. I'm going to send you a check for $1,000 to say thank you and to help support you during these hard times. So if you're interested in Toast and you have not reached out to Toast yet, hit pause right now. Head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable and get the best deal out there. And email me, Eric, at Restaurant Unstoppable to let me know you did that so you can be on my radar so I can make sure you get that $1,000 when you convert to a Toast uh, customer. Um, Okay, so with that said, uh, Toast is my only sponsor right now, and that's because things are really friggin' tough right now. Uh, Basically, this is what happened. You guys started having to close down, which means all the products and services that service you had no cash flow, which means they have no money for sponsorships and sponsoring companies like me. So this is perfect timing for me to pivot and to evolve and to do all these things I've been saying I want to do. I want to slow down. I want to strengthen the relationships that I already have. This is relationships with past guests. This is relationships with my listeners. This is relationships with the products, tools, and services that are being recommended on the show. And if I'm opening a restaurant tomorrow, I want to take you, my listeners, on that journey, the people I'm connecting with, the people I'm going to the people I'm going to to learn who do what they do best. And I want to round off this, this content library of deep dive workshops live, which means you can now join us live for these recordings and literally ask your questions to my network. And if you're interested 
be a part in, in being a part of this network head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com for a dollar a day you get access twice a week to me for an hour uh and you get access to me and my spotlighted guests every week we're gonna have a spotlighted guest a deep dive conversation into a specific topic that you if you're a part of this community you get to influence what we discuss i'm gonna be listening to you what whatever challenges you're having in your business i will listen to you i will get the expert to take us through the best solution for whatever your challenge is now's the time to be a part of this network there's only 20 people in this group right now which means your voice is really loud right now so if you want to connect with my network if you want to connect with other restaurant unstoppable listeners people who are passionate enough to spend all their downtime listening and learning about the restaurant industry if you want that support group again head to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com and be a part of the, the community be a part of the change be a part of the of of people that want to see good changes good good transformation in our industry. Okay. I think I can shut up now. I think I, I communicated what we're trying to do again. That's restaurantstoppablenetwork.com. It's a dollar a day for the price of less than coffee. Now in today's prices, you can be a part of an incredible network and organization. So we have an amazing person on today's show, Arion Dugan, who came to this country in 1985, uh, to, get into the restaurant industry and she saw this immediately this opportunity where coming from france uh where they do food right slow food um they she came and just saw there's this incredibly underserved market sustainable food food done right and she instantly became a purveyor of sustainably raised meats and with covid19 that market that that market of sustainably raised meats got hit hard because 70 percent of her customers were were fine dining uh, slow food restaurants. So today we talk about how impact how COVID hope wow how COVID nineteen impacted the sustainable food market. How she adapted, and also she's an incredible entrepreneur. We get a little bit of her story and how she how she got to where she is today. Really great stuff. I hope you guys enjoy it. And also we we I need to say this we we talk about what you can do to help educate the general public and to start doing the right things in your business too. So hope you enjoy. Here it is. Enjoy. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Ariane Dugan. Are you feeling unstoppable today? Yes. Yes. Uh, let's get into the story. So Ariane Dugan is the founder and owner and CEO of, I'm not even going to try to say this. I'm going to destroy it. I heard you say it, and it's nowhere near the same beauty when you, see, when you say this. In, say it for me. In French, D'Artagnan. In English, D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan. All right. I, I got this. So is the CEO of D'Artagnan, the renowned gourmet food purveyor, famous for providing humanely raised meats from game to frog gras to organic chicken and prepared charcuterie. The name, say it. I'm not going to do it good enough. You just do it so much better than I do. D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan <laughs> is synonymous uh, with top quality food produced with care. Today, we're here to discuss how the meat industry has been impacted by COVID-19, how Arian has uh, pivoted her company to keep quality meats on, on American tables, the issues of factory farming that have been brought to light by the pandemic, and why returning to sustainable meat methods is crucial to the environment and consumption consumer health. I can't wait to dive into your story, who you are and what you know about our broken system, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? 
All right. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. Um, and um, no, so so a little bit of a background first. Please. Want to do that? Yeah, yeah? get into it. Um, started the company 35 years ago um, here on the East Coast. Uh, before that, came from Gascogne, Gascogne, southwest of France, where uh, uh, the best food in the world comes from. This is well known, especially in southwest France, <laughs> right. Gascogne, and also where D'Artagnan comes from. Okay. And D'Artagnan was one of the four musketeers. You remember the book, The Three Musketeers? He really existed. The other musketeers really existed too. He was a big um, character. He was, and he's our hero, all of us in southwest France. We think we are descendants of D'Artagnan. We might very well be. He was a very active guy. But uh, he was a great, great uh, character. He actually did a lot of huge, very courageous deeds um, on battle for the king, Louis XIII. Um, but he had a lot of panache to him. And we think in Gascony, we think we have that. You know, we like to do things for the beauty of it, not for the what's in it for me. Why is that important, do you think? I think that society today has kind of gotten away from the beauty of things. And we're just so focused on... I don't know what it is exactly we're focused on, but it's not for the beauty of things. That's for I, sure. I think it's primordial. It's primordial. Hey, life is short and we see it every day now, even, even more so than before. Life is short. Might as well do the right thing. You know, put your little, a little bit of a mark in society uh, so that you don't, you, you haven't lived in vain. And so, that has been my feeling from the beginning. That's why I named my company after D'Artagnan, after him, uh, because I, I feel this is very, very important. Of course, it's important to have a profitable company, to be able to provide for all the employees, um, but it is also as important, if not more, huh, to have a raison de vivre, you know, to have a, uh, to be able to do a mark doing things the right way mm. in life. And so, that's what D'Artagnan has been trained to do for 35 years. I now. love it. Great way to get this thing started. And I know that you grew up in food and beverage. Your dad is uh, maybe a little well-known, we could say, right? <laughs> he's, Being he's, sarcastic. He, yeah. No, no. He he um, he passed away last December. Oh, I'm so sorry to he hear that. Was a, it's in the nature of things. But yeah. um, he, um, uh, he had uh, two Michelin stars in a small hotel restaurant in uh, southwest France, in the capital of Gascogne, called Auch. Uh, the name of the place was Hotel de France. That's where I was born. That's where I was raised with my brother and my little sister. And that's where I, um, first of all, learned my trade, that, that life, everything in life has to do about food. Mm. We all know that, you know. And... Um, uh, but that's also where I learned that I was not going to follow um, in his uh, steps and that uh, it was the man uh, of the children, uh, basically my brother, who was going to take over and not me, even though I was the uh, eldest. And I think that that um, uh, recognition of, of that, which was at the time, uh, that was 
how things were made. You know, uh, where you, I'm curious. Did you want? Did you want to to take over? Or was that something that you had wanted? Would you have? You, I, you were the firstborn son. I don't think I had the opportunity to think about it. I think we things were done this way when when you were the uh, the girl. Eventually, you would follow a husband into somewhere else, into uh, his own business. And so um, there was never a question of competition or anything between my brother and I. It was always never said, but always known and understood that he was going to be the one taking uh, over the business one day. When we're helping, when we were helping, he had a course, like a training course, you know, uh, Rotisserie, sauce, garde manger, desserts, um, uh, etc. I was helping wherever needed to be helped at that time and that day and that, at that moment. So I think somewhere, I don't know if I wanted to do it or not, but certainly it did instill in me a need to prove myself to uh, to me, but m- most importantly to my parents. You know, to my family, to my father. And I think a big part of the reason why I left France and I went to America, one was because I loved America and the idea of America, this pay of this country of freedom and opportunities. And, uh, but second is to get out of this influence and, uh, to try to prove uh, to my family that uh, I could do something on my own. Did you say get out of the influence? Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because my, my father was, um, he had a, a famous two Michelin stars uh, restaurant with big specialties like foie gras and duck, which are the specialties of this region of France. And, um, and he had a big personality. And so I didn't want uh, people to think that if I was going to be working here or there or in this position, that uh, I got there thanks to him or or thanks to his influence. I really wanted to get out of that sphere. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say it's kind of ironic because it was the influence that you had of this value of food that you were able to retain, right? And when you you brought, you put the, you put that, you know, it it helped form you into the woman you are today, this this emphasis Uh, on the quality. Totally, totally. And if, if that hadn't happened like that, I wouldn't be here today, for sure. Absolutely. So when you came to the States, like what, did you know exactly what you were going to be doing? Were you just trying to get it out of the, sh- the shadow of your father and that role that you were being forced into? What was going on? I wanted to become a journalist. Okay. Um, I, li- I like to write. And so I figured, hey, uh, let's try at uh, journalism. I went to Columbia University to um, first to uh, Barnard College in the, with the idea to go to graduate uh, school at uh, the Columbia University School of Journalism, which I never got to because I dropped out um, into my second year. I ran out of money. Um, and so uh, thank God I had a part-time job at uh, a little charcuterie, Salumeria, in uh, Greenwich Village. And I stayed there for five years until one day, a couple of guys arrived with foie gras. And that was going to be that, that duck liver was going to be the first foie gras 
uh, raised in America and made in America. It was for me, it was historical. It was very important. And so when my bosses decided not to go into that business, there was no hesitation. There was no, shall we do a business plan? It was, nah, we have to do this. I mean, this is, this is an opportunity that we cannot miss. We so, have to do this. So, and that's how, yeah. So let me make sure I understand. So you come, come to America, you're now you're working at a, a restaurant, correct? Did right. I hear that? A charcuterie, uh, charcuterie okay. like a retail store, a small retail store. All right, and then somebody brings this uh, fragua to the charcuterie store and presents this opportunity with the business owner, and they they turn their their nose to it, and you go, oh, "There's an opportunity right here. If you're not going to take this opportunity, I'm going to take this opportunity." And again, it's yep. the influence that you came up in this this culture, where, and this is what your dad specialized in. You knew the 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 value in this item that was being presented to these people. They didn't yep. capitalize it, and you stepped right in and you seized the moment. I love that. There was no question. Seriously, there there is no merit to it because there was no question. I was born into it. Yeah. And, and I love too because you said earlier on that, that you, when you came to America, you want to be um, what's the word, a journalist, right? And yeah. I feel like what a journalist's role is to get to the bottom of things, to get to the truth of things. And I kind of feel like you are a journalist today, but you're you're not necessarily putting the words down as so much as you're just going after the root of food and researching and getting to the essence of food. You are journalism. Like, you know what I'm saying? You are researching, you are getting to the, the, the root of, or the essence, the, the essence, yeah. the, the purest form of something. And that's, I feel like what a journalist does. Um, in part, yes, I think the biggest part is the education. Mm. You know, that's what the journalist does. It's to educate uh, the public mm. And that's what at D'Artagnan we've been doing for 35 years. It's to educate whether it's the chefs who are our main customers or the consumers in uh, the fact that when you raise animals the right way, the product at the end is going to be better. It's going to be better for you. It's going to be better tasting. It's going to be better for the planet. Uh, And it's going to be better for the the actual people who are um, uh, raising the animals. So really, before we start talking about the focus of today's conversation, COVID, like the effect COVID-19 has had on uh, just the meat market in general, let's talk a little bit more about how you've scaled your business and paint that picture of where your business was before COVID-19, how you got there real quick. So we had 35 years to, uh, to grow. Uh, we were super underfinanced. So we put every penny that we made, we put back in the company. Um, we reached 35 years. We did a huge party in February, February 21. Um, all my friends from France came, some famous uh, winemakers, some famous chefs, all my friends, rugby players, uh, from America, a lot of chefs from all over the United States. Uh, huge, big party, 30 stations, every famous chef cooking one of the animals that uh, some of our farmers uh, are raising. And the farmer right next to the chef to explain the animal husbandry of that particular animal. And then two weeks later, shut down. Mm. Every Thing closes. 75% of my business 
which is, which was restaurants closed overnight, Man. March 14, no more clients. And so that was very, very frightening, obviously. Uh, I'm conscious that we're not the only ones. Uh, that has been a huge, huge um, crisis for a lot of uh, other people and a lot of other industries. But when you are confronted with that, you are the only one on earth. You know, you're, you're, you're against a problem that, I mean, we've had crisis before, but not like that. Yeah. Certainly not like that. And so, uh, thank God we had started um, uh, e-commerce business uh, way before that. So we had already a platform, a website, principles of uh, acquisition yeah. of uh, uh, clients. And then we had a pretty good business also in retail, you know, retail stores. Was uh, that retail you said? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. But yeah. before we go forward, I kind of just want to make an example of you, um, just your story. And I mean, you're you're here to talk about the issues with the meme market. You're here to talk about the COVID nineteen and how you pivot. But you're also an incredible entrepreneur, and I I think we need to acknowledge that that you, you came with not a lot of, to your name, right? You you saw an opportunity that somebody else was passing on. You jumped on it, and from that opportunity, you scaled. And I don't know who else is doing what you're doing at the scale of the, 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 the restaurants you're supplying the, how many clients do you even have now from that? Just seeing that opportunity, how many clients do you have now? It's difficult to say. I mean, I, I'm not going to talk about e-commerce because <laughs> some clients are one time client, two times client, three times client. So it's not, you know, it's difficult to say, but uh, on the restaurant side, uh, we had close to 10,000 um, wow. clients and wow. and all the best chefs, all the best restaurants in America uh, were buying our product before they closed. Sister, I, uh, I got to get some, some nuggets out of you, some, some wisdom around entrepreneurship out of you because I feel like you... If I didn't, I wouldn't be doing my listeners a, a justice by pulling some more knowledge out of you. So regarding entrepreneurship, you said that you put everything you had back into the business. Get into the significance of that and how you scaled your business, where you were and the, the things that you think you did, the knowledge you had, the work, anything you want to drop on us before we move into like the, today's major subject. I think there's just more here that's worth pulling to the surface. So... At the very beginning, we didn't know what we were doing. All we knew was that there was a need for a product, foie gras. Then immediately, we understood that there was also a need and hopefully uh, for better poultry, better meats, better game meat in general. Because foie gras alone, we were not going to be able to survive. The potential was enormous, but the existing market was zero. And so... Right away, we went and uh, realized that the biggest, um, for us, the biggest, uh, not challenge, but the, um, uh, the most important thing in the business was sourcing, was to go out, get farmers, get ranchers, and convince them to raise these particular species, whether it's the lamb in Colorado or... Um, um, uh, or beef in uh, the Midwest, or uh, uh, poultry with the Amish in Pennsylvania, uh, to uh, to convince them to raise those animals the right way. For us, the right way meant following label rouge, which are which is a chart in France, which is pretty simple: no medication, no growth hormones, 
you know, no antibiotics, no medication whatsoever. If an animal gets sick, of course you medicate it, but then you put it out of the program. Um, no stress, as little stress as possible, up to the point where today I can tell you that there is no stress even in the transportation of the live animals, which is the most stressful place for animals, up to the point of killing. Um, and lots of room to, um, to roam around because when you develop muscles of the animals and you let them mature at their own speed, they make a better meat. And that is very easy to understand from professional chefs. Yeah. They got it right away. The business started right away very rapidly because they got it. They got the quality. They, you don't need to explain uh, for half an hour the difference between a, a factory farm chicken and a really good free-range chicken when you have them in, you know, in front of somebody who knows how to cook. They already see it visually, yeah. they, and, and as soon as they cook a piece of it, they understand it. It's much more difficult to educate the consumers, yeah. and that's why retail was a second wheel to the, to the car, because in retail... What's important and for consumers, what's important and very important is economical. Yeah, uh, the sticker that says the price is important. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you have priorities because you have the sticker price, but you also have, you also unconsciously or consciously know that you have to prioritize some things. Uh, and now uh, you can see for the last 35 years, we all can see the evolution of that consumer who is more and more um, uh, willing and, and understanding uh, that it's important to know where your food comes from, how it was raised, and um, because at the end, you are what you eat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is 1985 when you started your business. What was yeah. what? Who else was doing this in the States when you came here? Were there, was there anybody like you out there advocating no. and trying to, to educate farmers and people on how to do food right? Were you the only one no. that you could think of? No, we were the only ones. And so we specialized right away in the meat protein. There were other people in... Uh, vegetables, produce. There was a guy who was doing just tomatoes, but the best tomatoes, a guy who was doing microgreens, but just the best ones. I mean, they, they were in, uh, in other parts. But for the meat proteins, we were the only ones who were so specialized in only the good meat, mm. not the, the bad, the medium, and the uh, upscale. No, no, no. Just good meat. That's all we did from the beginning. Um, I think it helped us gain the respect of our clients, the chefs, and we were extremely lucky because when we started, it was in the same time that all those young chefs came out of those um, just opened um, uh, professional uh, schools, uh, restaurant schools, hotel schools, cooking schools, and those chefs didn't want to be uh, hidden in the basement anymore. They wanted to to uh, be creative and to be uh, recognized for their creativity and and for the quality of what they were coming out with. And thanks to that, um, we got a huge, huge word of mouth. And that's how really uh, we were 
never chasing the sales, but we were chasing the uh, the sourcing always. The the, the sourcing always is that what, what I yeah. heard that correctly? And yeah. I, what I love about your story, I mean, there's so much just from an entrepreneurial uh, business perspective. You know, there was a market that wasn't being served. I mean, you created a market, there, like, and if you can create. A market, then you instantly become number one. You're instantly the best at that thing. But the other part of your story that I love is that you're not, you weren't necessarily, I mean, obviously there was money to be made, but it sounds like what was more important to you was the integrity of the product and the, 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 the opportunity to do things right, to improve something. And whenever there's a way to do something that's not being done or to improve something that's already being done, I feel like there's, there's always opportunity there. And beyond that, I feel like just acknowledging it, I literally going to tip my hat to you and acknowledge you for coming to this country and educating people to do it the right way and to show people that there is value in not cutting corners and not focusing on the bottom line, but but focusing on integrity and respect and bringing us closer back back to where we were with food. And it sounds like you you were at the leading edge of that. And I just need to acknowledge you publicly and thank you for. I feel like you were like the trigger that set us on this movement we're at, we're we're on now, where now everybody's becoming aware of this. I mean, you thank were doing you. this like thirty four years ago. That's incredible. Yeah, and I wasn't the only one. And there were there were pioneers in there. Remember uh, Julia Child, yeah. for example, who always, Jacques Pepin, who always um, were big proponent of hey, the quality of the ingredient is the main thing. And then you had chefs like Jean-Louis Paladin, um, who, who were exactly in the same frame of mind. And then you had restaurateurs like Danny Meyer. We all started pretty much in the same time. And with with that same frame of mind, you're not doing the right thing and trying to be the best at what we can do. Thank you for being a shining example of that and giving us something to aim for. Seriously. Um, So at this point, I want to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to talk about what happened after COVID-19. We'll pick up that conversation from there. Did you know Toast is the number one most recommended POS on Restaurant Unstoppable? I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that more than two-thirds of their employees have worked in the restaurant industry. And I'm feeling pretty confident that has something to do with their commission-free online ordering, which is a hot ticket right now, which lets guests easily order directly from restaurants for pickup or contactless delivery to keep revenue flowing during these uncertain times. They even have delivery services, which dispatches local drivers through an on-demand network to keep your community fed and revenue coming. Regardless of the reason why people are recommending Toast, I highly recommend you go check them out during this industry-wide pause. To learn more head to toasttab.com slash unstoppable and because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners for a limited time get one month of free pos software three months of free digital ordering tools and 50 percent off implementation to ease the impact of covid19 this is a value of one thousand dollars one more time that's toasttab.com dot com slash unstoppable you have to use that link to save one thousand dollars all right we are back and um you started talking to us about what happened uh after covid19 you said 70 percent of your business instantly evaporated and went away when restaurants closed they and that's another thing that's worth mentioning is restaurants are at the leading edge of this movement of of trying to educate the general public retail of 
our broken food system. So they're your biggest evangelist. They're your biggest sounding board, right? So not only did you lose your business, but I feel like you also lost your advocacy in these restaurants. No. On one side, yes. On the other, because they disappeared, uh, there was a, an instant need uh, by the consumers to eat better than what they would eat normally at home. And so it instantly, overnight, um, uh, up one notch the uh, or two, uh, the quality uh, of products that... Um, Uh, people wanted to bring home to experiment and cook. And there was this wave of experimenting and cooking and being more adventurous at home uh, with cooking than ever before. So while uh, my main business disappeared, and so people who uh, raise uh, quail and squab and pheasant and ducks and bison and venison, um, Those people uh, were all of a sudden we didn't have any more demand for that type of product. Yes, we were selling chickens, good chickens. Yes, we were selling beef, good beef, and wagyu beef, Angus, and grass fed. But the more exotic product, uh, it was more difficult. I mean, we we did sell them, but not at the same rate than. Um, when you had restaurants to cook it for you. You know, it's, it's much easier to eat for the first time uh, a squab dish or a venison dish in a restaurant where you know that uh, the chef cooked it right than to try to um, cook it at home. At home, it was, it stayed, it, it, it was more adventurous, but it stayed in the staple a little bit. So, so, I think I'm hearing great. So when COVID hit, you lost 70% of your uh, major business, but you still had the elements of the online, the e-commerce. You, you built those channels. You had those those uh, channels that, that e-commerce built. So, But you just weren't doing a lot of business there yet because people could get that food through the restaurants. And then when the right. restaurants closed, did it like overnight just like take off? Like, Are you doing more revenue yeah. now than you were before the restaurants? No, 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 no. no. We, we, we did not compensate for the loss of the restaurant, but we did go up like 500% on e-commerce. Um, all our energy, all our employees, we have 260 employees. Uh, overnight, all the energy, all the employees, all the investments went into e-commerce. So you said uh, 70% of your revenue was from restaurants. Um, and yes. then from there, you also had retail. And from there, you had e-commerce. What percentage was retail and e-commerce? And the rest, 25. It was kind of 50-15 between the two. To, 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 to give you real numbers, um, we were at a running rate of $150 million. Our fiscal year ended, just ended, end of June. So we never went to the $150 million. We ended up the same place we were last year, which is $132 million. Um, so with, of course, expenses budgeted that were above that. So we were in difficulty right off the bat, first day. But the, in order to compensate for that, again, we put all our energies into that e-commerce. And that carried away i mean it was like fish jumping on the boat you know the it was 
really uh, we were uh, out of the um, out of the 130 million we had um, 10, 10 million yeah. in, uh, in website. so it, it wasn't nothing but but we had to uh, jump uh, to to kick it uh, it could have been uh, much worse if you weren't proactive setting up those channels of revenue being an entrepreneur beforehand like you didn't wait until the last minute to to create these opportunities like you were prepared you were proactive right I, or am i out of line saying that well we already had a website we already had some clients we already had some good practices we um we knew what to do we already knew that uh, um People at home will buy smaller pieces. They will buy the chop and not the whole we buy. You know that kind of thing. I mean, it's. Uh, uh, but then we still had plenty of things that we didn't know about and that we learned on the fly. And um, you were uh, asking uh, earlier about our motto, and and so the the motto of the company, which is what D'Artagnan, the real one, was saying. Uh, to all his uh, musketeers constantly is all for one, one for all. Mm. That's the motto. And that. all for one, one for all turned out to be culturally very, very helpful in these times. Um, I think in normal times, it is my motto. You know, I believe in it. It is something that is very important. All for one, one for all. That's the... In, in, we're in all this together, in all united, uh, we stand. I mean, there is something to that, that one plus one does not equal two. One plus one equals three. Mm. It's, it's obvious, you yeah. know, it, that uh, strength is in the, um, uh, in, in the unity. And so thanks to that and thanks to that culture, um, in our company, um, the, all the team members were super adaptable and willing and standing ready to do whatever was necessary to keep the company whole during the crisis. And I think that's the key. You know, you can ask me a hundred questions about best practices in business or during a crisis or whatever, but at the end of the day, I stand on what I'm saying here I think it was this all for one, one for all that made the day because everybody was in this together. And we, the job descriptions of 80% of the employees changed overnight and changed again three days later and changed again a month yeah. later. You know, the last three months have been a roller coaster of adaptability and changing things and new challenge and new pivot and new changing. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel like that you're only down like it's, it's approximately 15% from last year is a testament. I mean, with all that has happened that you lost 70% of your revenue overnight and that you were only, only down like approximately 15, 20% from last year's numbers is a testament to your, your values and, and it, what you got going yeah, on over there. And it, and it was because of that, you know, it was because of this all, all for one, one for all. It was also because uh, people were buying more on websites in general, and people were buying more in retail stores. Yeah. People were panicking. They were storing in their freezers. Uh, so that that was a little bit of a help there to to uh, 
to launch uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so we're here like one of the things we're, we're here to talk about is the impact of COVID-19 on the meat industry I feel like we're kind of getting into that because the majority of the people that were purchasing sustainable meat done right were these these restaurateurs that were kind of leading the way and educating people on our broken food system you you lost those those buyers uh, you've gained more buyers uh, through uh, e-commerce but what else has been the impact of COVID-19 on the meat industry? What haven't we discussed yet? So um, I alluded a little earlier uh, about the fact that uh, the products are different. Consumers don't buy the same things than um, professional chefs do. <clears throat> professional chefs will go for the little more adventurous uh, game meat, game, uh, game birds. Um, and whole animal versus cuts like you were talking about too. Right, yeah. right. Uh, but first on the species, you know, bison, not so much. Venison, not so much. Um, wild boar, not so much. Uh, wagyu, not so much. But And I say that, but it's been growing tremendously in eh, those uh, products. But still, the squab, the quail, the rabbit, that the volumes are not there. So we had to adapt to that. And then the second part was the cut. Um, consumers tend to uh, prefer cuts that are easy to cook because yeah, they are not professional the skills, yeah. uh, chefs. Um, and also they have a smaller uh, amount of people to feed. So they need pre-cut uh, steaks or uh, chops or uh, uh, portions in general. So we had to adapt to that immediately. But what was very reconforting during the whole time is that we could see that all of a sudden people got interested and it's tough to generalize. Of course, it's not people, everybody, you know, but the people who are in our sphere were more and more interested in sophistication of cooking and in asking the right questions on the where does that animal come from? What does it eat? What's the breed? What, how they were, you know? And, and I hope this new passion for food and this new passion for cooking is not just for the COVID crisis. I really hope this is here to stay because this is what I think I've been trying to bring from France to here all along is this conviviality this pleasure, this happiness that you have when you cook for people, when you cook wholesome ingredients for people and that you are at a table and it is convivial and you're at the end of the day and you sit down and uh, uh, the kids are talking about what they did during the day and the parents answer and there is a, a real social life uh, coming from sharing bread together yeah and, and, yeah and, and it sounds like you know there is a lot of good that's coming from covid19 i think it's we the culture of the united states um has always just been go 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 uh as much as possible and as little time as possible right the more we can get accomplished the better uh and we lost we kind of got d detached from the things that really matter in life of uh, family uh you know, just relationships in general and uh, focus on quality over quantity. Right. Um, and I agree with you that it, because we were forced to stop because we, we couldn't go at the pace we were used to going, we 
all this. And, and because we were forced to be together, forced to socially isolate together with those who are closest to us and to, to, to literally not be able to get away from each other. I think it, it did pull some of these, these things back to the surface. Um, and, and it didn't suck. We're like, wow, this actually isn't horrible that I get to see my family every day that I'm forced to be at home that I'm, that I'm forced to source my food more responsibly now that I can't just go to the restaurant and get good stuff. Like I, I, I have to recreate, I got used to the standard right and now. I have to recreate that standard because it's what, because now I'm aware of it because he's uh, no, with, with a little caveat because okay. it's not, it's not because you go to the restaurant that you're going to have a better quality meat. There are, there are good restaurants. There are not so good restaurants. There is a food truck. There is a, and, and that's um, another point that I would like to make is that um, we, I, I hope that we're going to limit that uh, propensity for us to, to be hypocritical, to talk on both sides of our mouth, where when you go to the good restaurant, you expect to have the name of the farmer right next to the piece of veal that uh, humanly raised that uh, uh, the chef is going to cook for you um, uh, or the duck. But then when you go to the food truck and you, you buy your, uh, your uh, chicken tacos, you, ha- you absolutely have no qualm about eating that tacos with that mystery chicken in there without asking questions. Yeah. Why would you demand a good chicken in the restaurant? Why would you demand a good chicken when you go in the retail store and you are careful and you look at the ingredient, you know, on the label? Um, or, or the claims on the label, and then when you uh, when you're out uh, at the stadium, you buy the uh, the, the really really shitty uh, hot, hot dog. dog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why? I don't know. Why? I have yeah. no idea. Um, but I, some of my concerns with COVID nineteen is that we were as an industry. I feel like we were slowly but surely making progress. And I think that you're a testament to that where you, when you came into the industry, you came into the country in 1985 um, and where we were then with really not having the the system was really starting to like get to its worst point. The food system was really starting to get to its worst point in the nineties and the early two thousands. And I feel like since then we've slowly been coming out of it and creating awareness about our broke, our broken food system to the point where now where the consumer, your average person knows the issues. I mean, it's, it's public, it's out there. Most people know that our system's flawed. And since COVID-19, I feel like a lot of the progress we've been making, we've had to stop because we can't because we're so strapped for cash because we all of our cash flow has stopped. We're being forced to going back to bad habits, like looking at the bottom line, like purchasing styrofoam to, 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 to like do to go like all these examples. Um, like, are you concerned that people are going to be focused on the bottom line again and just start purchasing factory grown meat because we have to survive? Is that a fear of yours? So, it's a one. It's a question of priority. If good meat is a little more expensive, not a lot more expensive, but a little more expensive than bad meat, maybe there is hope, and that's what I've been trying to do for thirty-five years. Okay, we don't do huge margins. We just we 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 need to pay what is right to the farmer and the ranchers, um, but. Uh, it, it's, it's not that huge of a difference. So I hope that it's going to stick, even though, and it does in other, 
in other industries. You know, there are people who are willing to buy uh, Nike shoes instead of uh, the very cheap um, uh, tennis shoes. But uh, um, you can, first of all, you cannot oblige people. There are economical uh, restrictions. Yeah. Um, but but. I, I really want to insist, even more importantly, it's it's a question of priorities. And I don't understand if you do eat that undefined hot dog um, at the stadium or for the 4th of July, even though the rest of the week you were very careful about the ingredients that you've been buying to make your own bread or to... Uh, uh, or to uh, make a rotisserie chicken with uh, the right organic chicken or free range chicken, then then you're not ready. Then yes, we're going to go back in our bad uh, habits because that means that that means that we're missing something. We have not understood the importance of the quality of the ingredient. A quality meat is a meat that comes from an animal that did not pollute the earth. When you have small family farms that raise animals in a respectable way, res- respecting the animals, the animals are going to be a good quality uh, meat. But also, those farmers are going to have decent wages and the planet, the earth, is not going to be depleted, is not going to be polluted. When you do buy that hamburger in that fast food, you have to know somewhere that it comes from a beef that has been for six months in a feedlot where the, 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 the soil was totally bare and uh, uh, where the carbon was going up in the air uh, yeah. every two seconds. Or being pumped with antibiotics and being fed corn, yeah. like non-natural, you know what I mean? Like, Keep, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt. Keep going. I just, I'm just feeling Yeah, no, 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 no. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's a big, it's a big pet peeve of mine, you yeah. know, to, uh, to, to see that, uh, uh, two weekends ago, I was at the 4th of July party where uh, people were very proud because on the grill, they were those Wagyu, uh, strip loin steaks and they were beautiful and they happened to come from D'Artagnan, but okay. But on the other grill, there were hot dogs. I don't <laughs> understand. I do not understand. You know, like and they I'm, didn't I, know you were there or something. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not against competition. It's just yeah. why would you want to spend the money to uh, put good things in your body and then to cancel it out. are willing to put crap two seconds later or, no. or before? I don't understand. I, know, I want to unpackage this a little bit more. We need to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. What's going on, guys? So if you uh, listen to the opening thoughts of this episode, you heard me talk about RestaurantUnstoppableNetwork.com. Restaurant Unstoppable in the future is going to be far more intentional. And instead of adding new relationships and focusing on new people to make an example of, we'll still be doing that. But the focus is going to be on connecting with past guests and going 
in strengthening those relationships with my, my, my most loyal listeners and helping you connect with each other, helping you connect with my past guests and helping you connect with the experts and the products and tools that have been recommended on the show. So basically you can think of this network. If I'm opening my restaurant tomorrow, these are the people I'm going to, to learn. And I want to go through this process with you. Who knows? Maybe I'll be opening a restaurant in the next couple of years. And this community is going to be my way of, of really working through and starting to get intentional about opening my restaurant. So we can open our restaurants together. If you want to be a part of this, head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. Join the conversation. Be a part of the change. We're back. And you just got done saying that you don't understand why you're, you're willing to put all this good into you. And then seconds later, you, you put the hot dog into your body right afterwards. Um, what is, what is the solution? What, if we're going to like, I want to wrap up today's conversation talking about what needs to happen to go into the future better and stronger than we were before the COVID-19 and it's go ahead. It's all up to the consumer. If the consumer is educated, if the consumer is conscious of how bad, how bad it is to sponsor uh, bad stuff, then little by little, uh, we're going to go into the right direction. And and I've seen a lot of good signs during the uh, this crisis that really made us jump uh, into the right direction. But I've seen a lot of good signs these last 30 years. So I'm very optimistic about the uh, the future. I think we are going in the right direction. Um, there were some huge abuse in the past, and it's no no fault of nobody. It's just that uh, after World War II, baby boom, we needed to feed people. Uh, people just didn't know. And, and, we we yeah, didn't know better, yeah. you know. The, yeah. the information wasn't there yet. But now we know, and and I I think consumers underestimate the power of consumerism. Yeah. We have the power to make or not choices you know so let's make the right choices and 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 i understand uh there are priorities i understand you need to uh to pay the bills you need to uh uh to pay the rent etc but one of the most important thing in life is to nutritionally um uh to, to eat correctly yeah. And I, I think, you know, yes, it does come down to educating, just generally like telling people like this is important because X, you know, Y, Z, all these reasons. But also I think it comes down to a core values and, uh, um, and getting a new set of core values and I've putting in like putting more value on food. And I don't know, you, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you were um, familiar with this book. Um, it's called um, the, the town food saved and it profiles a book in Vermont or sorry, it profiles a town in Vermont where that town just put a lot of energy into doing food, right. And it like turned the economy around in this town. And there was a stat in that book. And I can't remember exactly what the numbers are, but something like in like the sixties or fifties, and I'm throwing out random numbers there to give you an idea, but it was like 25% of the average household's income went to purchasing food. Like 25% of the average household's income went to purchasing food. That's a random, it's, it's approximately that number. I don't know the exact numbers And today. Okay. Do you have any guess at how much money our average household's income goes towards food? 10, 
it was like either like 12 or like a 9%, like in that range, you nailed it on the spot, like 10%. So the, th- the issue is we just lost, we don't value food the same way we used to, you know, like, yeah. and I think that's a fundamental, a fundamental issue is under people need to understand that you are what you eat. Like if you, if it's it, it, like, if how much money would we save on healthcare? And insurance, if we didn't have to, you know, like we just, I think we, we've kind of messed up our priorities. So exactly. do you want to reflect exactly. on that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you nailed it. You nailed it. It's yeah. exactly that. Yeah. So it's a combination just of just general education and under people help helping people understand that you need to, you know, to, to change your values. There's things that are more important than life than all these, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Tangible things, materialistic things, right? Like food is materialistic, but it's material, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm all over the place right now. One other thing I wanted to talk about, and I was curious to get your take on this. Um, where do you stand on, uh, like the impossible burger? What's your take on the impossible burger? Uh, so there are two, and there is a plant-based burgers and there is the, uh, cell, uh, cell meats. Um, so cell meats right now, um, I've tasted Explain one. what a cell meat is just in case nobody knows. So uh, it's basically meat that has been built in a lab uh, from cells, multiplying uh, cells uh, synthetically. Yeah. So growing a piece of meat artificially yeah. that doesn't have a, 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 a right. consciousness attached to it. So, so far, so far, it has, we have shown that it is possible that the texture cannot be reproduced right now as far as the whole muscle uh, texture and the consistency. Well, fat too, like but, the marble but, and the fat. Yeah, but, but that it will happen it, eventually. I mean, they are making progress. There, are, there is 3D printing. There are a lot of things. But right now, it's just a mushy mess. That's all it is. So cell meats, I'm going to put on the side for now because it's not really commercially available. Right now, it's $500 a pound for a piece of uh, imitation chicken. So we're not there yet. Yeah. And I will we'll have to, I have to come back to you Please. when, uh, when this is on the, on the market. Plant-based. So same thing as far as the texture, okay? It has to be uh, the reproduction of ground, something ground. It's not the texture. It's not the consistency of meat. Um, so... One, why? If you want to eat a burger or to have the sensation of a burger, eat a burger. Don't eat something with plant. What's the point? I don't understand the point. If you want to eat and have pleasure in eating a good burger, eat a good burger. Uh, If you want vegetables, eat good vegetables, Uh, whether they are legumes in salad or uh, sophisticated or in uh, vinaigrette, but why trying to imitate badly something with something else? I uh, I, I don't see the point. The, sorry, go and, ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the second thing is, have you seen the ingredient list on those plant-based burgers? <laughs> they are a little bit frightening. Get into so it. So, <laughs> if if people do that because they would like to become vegetarian, but they can't really because they love burgers so much, so that they want to fool their own body, their own palate into thinking that they are eating a burger and they are taking that plant-based uh, stuff instead. I think it's wrong because if they are doing it for the good reasons, which is saving the planet, 
there are other ways. To save the planet, we need biodiversity. For biodiversity, we need all the different animals um, that exist to stay there. They are not going to continue to exist if we don't buy them. Mm. You know, people are not going to raise them for free. And you never seen a cow free uh, in the wild. Yeah. They cannot survive. They are, they are, they are, they are animals of prey. They need man to, uh, to survive. And the last thing that I want to say about plant-based is I personally, I don't enjoy the, uh, that, that taste, but more importantly, I would like to know the same way I need to know where my meat comes from and how it was raised. I want to know how that soy was raised and if it was factory farming and if it was a piece of the Amazonian that totally got uh, uh, cut exactly. and eliminated for uh, for that monoculture that is not good yeah, for the Exactly. Yeah. And that's where I get hung up. And um like to come back to what you say, I don't know why people prefer to eat these impossible burgers or the beyond burger. It's because what they're being told that, that this is a better alternative than factory growing animals in like monoculture is a better alternative. It's, it's less bad, but it's still bad. And that's what I don't think people understand. Like monoculture farming is bad for the environment. The microorganisms that they're destroying in these massive plots of, of earth are being yeah. like, we don't think to that level because we don't see it. We don't, we don't think about it, but like we're destroying, like that is not, good farming that is that is a part of the issue too and what you said earlier that the 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 solution to getting out of this mess that we've gotten ourselves into is by going to sustainable farming where we have animals that are being raised properly with ethics and standards and there's people that like there's evidence to show that that's literally the answer of coming out of this mess is by like what's the word it's like when you there's a name for it when you have a cow being moved from plot to plot and they're regenerating the yeah, earth it's the- a it's a rotation of Thank pasture you. because yeah. that that gives you the opportunity to regenerate the earth yeah and regenerating the earth is very good because it takes the carbon that we produce that the animals produce and it actually brings exactly. it down the soil needs it, it held by the worms etc but recreates but a natural key, system yeah, the key to that is biodiversity. Yes. You know, when you when you do rotation on the pasture, you start with the cows and three days later you put the chickens in there. And you 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 rotate. This you basically try to do on your plot what nature has done without us for yeah. centuries and centuries. And that's a big thing I want to make sure people understand is like yes, will eating that burger is that better for the environment than factory farming animals yes but it's still not a solution and they're trying to pitch it they're trying to market it as a solution to our problems and it's just not and that's what bothers me the solution is the staying as close to the natural process as possible uh recreating not trying to fight against the natural process but trying to coexist with the natural process and mimic it as close as possible and that yeah, and we need to do and, that. And, and, and I have much more respect for vegetarians who eat a varied uh, amount of uh, vegetarian foods uh, and try get to the proteins. have protein yeah. in the different ways, or a meat eater who's going to limit the amount of meat because we eat too much meat. Yeah. But 
are going to eat the right meat, the ones that came from animals who didn't pollute, rather than uh, promoting and sponsoring those monoculture of uh, cereals. And again, please look at that label. Look at those ingredients. Yeah. It's pretty frightening. Yeah. And the only th- other thing I don't think we have mentioned up to this point, which I'll just kind of bounce off of you to get your ideas before we wrap up, is that I feel like the other issue in our nation, and we all love, I, I mean, I love me. I, I can't say we all love me, but I do think that our nation eats way too much meat, which mm-hmm. is part of the issue. And like, I can't afford to buy a $20 chicken. Like, that's so expensive. But the thing is, when you start eating meat in the appropriate portions, it becomes more affordable. It's just that our, our, yep. we just eat so much of it that it, it's, it's not meant, we, we, we never ate that much meat. Well, maybe I can't say that either. I don't know for certain hunter gatherers. Um, no, no, it, it, it all came after World War II. Yeah. That's when we started to be uh, cons- consumers and over consumers and had a marketing strategy of uh, big companies encouraging us to eat too much, too much, too much meat, too much processed food, too much milk, too much anything. And, and enriched also. Yeah. But that, I, that, yeah. that huge. I, I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is that um, if you, if you spend the same amount, the same percentage of money on meat and got better meat, then you'd probably be healthier because you'd be getting an appropriate amount of meat into your diet. And, <laughs> like, and, more, and more satisfied. Yeah, I promise you. And, and better more quality, satisfied. like better for your yeah. body, you know? Yeah. yeah. So we've covered there a is, lot. Sorry, go ahead. There is, there is a book uh, by uh, Fred Provenza. I was on a webinar uh, where he was and he just came out with a book called Nourishment where he shows how uh, different experiments with animals and lamb in particular show that an, uh, uh, an animal will go and given the choice, will eat exactly what's nutritionally important for him or her, the animal. And uh, we used to be like that. Man used to be that animal. We, we used to know yeah. what to eat, what not to eat instinctively. We lost it totally. Now we eat because there are things in our food that makes us eat more and more and more. Yeah. Anything we have not discussed up to this point that you're hoping to discuss before we wrap up? I think we went pretty much around everything. Yeah, I had a blast yeah, yeah. speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, if we are a restaurant owner, like the majority of my listeners are, uh, and we're interested in purchasing from me, what's the best way to connect? Uh, you go to www.dartanian.com. D'Artagnan? I could, probably could have done that. I was so sorry. afraid to say that earlier. I'm so sorry. I just I chickened out. <laughs> Where you spell it D A R T A G N A N dot com. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. No, the show. thank you. Thank Actually, you. It was a pleasure. It, it was a true pleasure. I almost forgot to ask you, and you know so many incredible people because of the, the work you do within the restaurant industry. One question I ask all my guests is who is one person that you respect and admire in this industry who you think is really doing it right, who I need to make an example of? Put them on my radar, call them out. I'll try to get them on the show. Well, maybe that guy, Fred uh, Provenza, I don't know him very well. You know, I, I know all the chefs around, but 
But I think this book is a very important book. Yeah. Fred, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And thank you again, Arian, so much for coming on. Uh, there is no question. You are unstoppable. <laughs> thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much. And, uh, Attends, awesome. You were great. We, we, we agree too much. We agree too much. There is no debate. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Arian Dugan from Dakton Young. God, I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, such an incredible episode. Such an eye-opening episode. Uh, helping us kind of reconnect with where we were in the industry before COVID-19. And hopefully... Um, we're coming back even stronger than before. And I think the big takeaways for me in today's episode, first, I mean, just making an example of Ariane, uh, for entrepreneurship of uh, seeing this opportunity and uh, in capitalizing on this opportunity in in giving the industry, you know, it's like, it kind of reminds me of what uh, Harold, Harold, something Ford, whatever that Ford, the original Ford guy there, that uh, if I gave the market what they wanted, they would have, you know, I would have given them faster horses. Uh, but the thing is, we don't know what we need. We don't know what we want. And what we need and, and what, what we want is to get back to a natural order to do food with integrity. And I think that that's kind of the, the next thing, the, the next big takeaway for me is what, what I'm trying to do with the restaurant Unstoppable is just what Ariane was trying to do back in 1985 and what she continues to do today is to inject integrity back into the world and uh, just doing things the right way and um, kind of helping paint the picture of what is right. I, don't, I think we've gotten so far away from what's right. Uh, we don't even know when we're doing something that's wrong just because of, of how our values uh, have gotten so twisted and our priorities have gotten so out of order over the past, you know, whatever years. But just kind of helping people reconnect with what's what's most important in the restaurant industry. I think it's relationships, and that's why starting uh, in August, I'm going to be slowing down and being far more intentional with my content. We're going to be starting Restaurant Unstoppable Network, where I'm going back through my network of past guests, the people who made the biggest influence on me, whether a restaurateur or an expert. And we're going to, if, if I'm opening a restaurant tomorrow, here's the path I'm taking. Here are the people I'm going to to learn on the certain subjects. And I want you to be a part of this network, of this community, trying to do things the right way. If you want support to do things the right way, come join our community, restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. Uh, join the conversation. Help influence the future of Restaurant Unstoppable. I don't want to do it any lo- alone anymore. I want to do it with you guys. So come join the community one more time, restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. And uh, thank you guys so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. Uh, I almost forgot to mention uh, in this network that we're building, Restaurant Unstoppable Network, there's going to be a book club where we get together once a month to cover a book, to talk about a book in kind of like a round table on Zoom. Uh, so if you guys are interested in joining this network in that book club, the first book we're reading starting in August is A Lapsed Anarchist's Approach to Building a Great Business. This is a book by Ari Weinswag of Zingerman's. And actually, Ari is our first guest back to back the, the first and second week of August. I'm going to be reconnecting with Ari Weinswag, a past guest on the show. Uh, one of the co-founders of Zingerman's uh, delicatessen and Zingerman's com- uh, community of business. And we're going to be talking about visioning and uh, flattening the hierarchy in a restaurant and basically leaning into human nature and that, 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 that natural order. So if you're interested 
in those topics and connecting with Ari and learning more about Ari, do get his book and do come join the network and the conversation. We meet every Tuesday from 11 to noon central time, uh, 12 noon to one Eastern. You, You get the idea. You can do the math. I don't need to do it for you. Join the conversation. All right. Until next time. Peace out.